Hey, hi, I'm Bonnie. Welcome to this podcast, Make Joy Normal, where we chat about homeschooling and family life. With my co-hosts, Elizabeth and Christina, we address your questions and topics in a way that can create more joy in our lives. Please submit any questions you have by email or voice message in the links in the show notes. If you found this episode valuable, please share it with a friend, like, or leave us a review. That's how we get the word out. Thanks for trying to make joy normal in your own life. Early on in our homeschool journey, I became aware that beauty and an appreciation for art in all its various forms was a really important aspect to our home education, especially because I had artistic children and I wanted to foster that in them. So years ago, I discovered Catholic heritage curricula and was first introduced to their art appreciation resources for young children in their Art Masterpieces series, which was excellent and we used for a number of years. A desire for deeper understanding led us to the CHC program, Ever Ancient, Ever New. It's a program in two parts. Ever Ancient, Ever New guided us from ancient art forms chronologically to the art of the Renaissance. And then part two leads us from the art of the high Renaissance through the modern era. The first thing that drew me to the art appreciation uh, that they offer is the the history and the distinctly Catholic perspective. It was really beautiful. But the program also presents art theory and opportunities to practice with a companion art pad that goes along with the books. CHC materials are always steeped in beauty, and this program is really delightful. It helped us cultivate a sensitivity to beauty, and I think for the children that I used it with, it gave us all the foundation in the eras of art and characteristics that define them. The lives of artists, cultural influences, and the implications of those influences in art uh, are explored in the context of each chapter. Every Inch and Ever New can be used independently by children in grades five and up, or read together as a family with, with much younger children. As something we valued in our family, this program makes art appreciation something that parents can share with their children without being overwhelmed by the idea of introducing art. It's beautiful, it's simple and engaging. A link to the program is in the show notes. Have a look and enjoy all of CHC's art programs and all of their beautiful programs as well. Hey, good afternoon. I am going to chat today, as I have several times on this podcast before, but really more specifically about sort of the carrot and stick ideas of discipline and sort of where we can go with that instead of kind of culturally where we find ourselves. So I'm going to chat about that. And I've got seven kids and there's, you know, a big range of temperaments and a range of personalities and whatnot. But um, more than anything, there's a big range of sort of willingness to comply, right? When I decided I was going to homeschool, it was really important to me that our education wasn't about in any way about rewards and consequences. That was really important to me because I felt really strongly that education should be something that is pursued for its own sake. And my attitude towards that uh, was going to really deeply influence my kids and how they how they saw learning 
and how they saw it play out in the sense that I was leading them as opposed to, uh, you know, foisting it upon them or making them do something. So that really, that idea of non-coercion really influenced my parenting. So it was sort of a, almost a back formation from homeschooling, uh, that, that influence. So I think it's really important to start off by saying this, that whatever we do for our children, we do out of love. So all the choices that we make for their lives, their education, the food we choose, activities, the, you know, how we discipline, all the choices and decisions we make painstakingly as parents are made with our love at the forefront of the decision, right? So the difficulty that we experience, though, is often what we choose to do out of love, um, especially in terms of discipline and education, often doesn't look loving. And so we're kind of on this difficult paradox that that we're living in, right? You know, we're reactive to our children's behaviors and attitudes because we're invested in the relationship. We want them to be the best they can be, and we want to do the best for them. When we see them doing things that aren't best for themselves, we we react, and we usually react negatively. We react because our investment in this particular human being is huge, okay? So day in and day out, we're kind of living this paradox. And what we want to be, which is loving, and what we actually do are frequently sort of in contradiction with each other. So living a paradox is uncomfortable and discouraging, both for ourselves and for our children, right? So we can't live in constant discord with ourselves. We, we really, that would sort of gnaw away at us, right? When I was pregnant with my first daughter, you know, I was thinking a lot about what kind of mother I wanted to be and, you know, what kind of person I was. I had this experience, which was really lovely for me at the time, because it really helped me to understand what was what was in front of me. So one day I was working in a shopping mall and I I was on a corner, sort of a busy corner of the shopping mall right across from a food court. And so there was a lot of people watching, right? There was a lot of, I could see everything that was kind of going on in front of me. And there was a little girl sitting in a cart and a baby sitting in the front of the cart. And the mother was holding the hand of, say, maybe a four-year-old. So it was maybe a, um, you know, four or five-year-old, a two, two and a half-year-old and a infant sitting in the cart in the four or five-year-old was being sort of pulled along by her hand. It was Christmas time. It was busy. And the mother was obviously frustrated, right? Obviously annoyed, irritated with her kids. And I was watching her. I felt bad. And I felt bad for her because this is hard to Christmas shop with three small children. You know, I, I'm not trying to make any judgment on the mother because I think that, you know, there we presented many times with difficult situations. But in the midst of this, as she was going right past my shop, she grabbed the baby by the arm who had been hollering and carrying on. She grabbed the baby by the arm and said, if you don't stop, I'm going to kill you, right? Now, I don't, I was not worried. I was shocked and appalled at at what she said to her baby. I wasn't worried that the child was in mortal danger, that the mother was going to actually abuse the child. It was a, you know, for all intents and purposes, a, a uh, an idiom, a, you know, way we, uh, way we say something. Um, it's just a wildly inappropriate way to express yourself, right? Even if you're really, really angry, you know, I could have killed them. I'm going to kill you. This is, you know, this is, just think about this for a minute, right? It's wildly inappropriate. And I think that we've become sort of numb, numb to that. I mean, she said it in anger. And again, I wasn't worried that she was going to harm the child. I just was so um, taken aback by uh, somebody speaking to their child that way. And what 
really disturbed me was I thought, gosh, you know, am I going to be that mom one day when I have two or three little kids and, and I'm really, really frustrated and I'm in that position? You know, is it possible that I could say something so unloving and so detrimental to my children? Is it is that possible, right? And and so I was disturbed by that. And a couple of hours went by and I was just sort of really pondering on that as how how we can slide as human beings slide, as individuals um, slide as parents, to places that we would have never imagined ourselves. And then I was working away, and a couple of hours later, with this sort of deep, heavy thought on my brain, I was watching over uh, at the Orange, there was an Orange Julius across the hallway from us, and there was a, a mom and a little girl, probably, you know, three-ish or something, standing in the Orange Julius lineup. And they stood there for quite a while, it was busy, and she finally, finally got up to the till, and she ordered, had two drinks, and she took one of the drinks and she gave it to her daughter who was waiting to receive the drink. And the drink slid right through her daughter's hands and uh, in this massive puddle on the floor. I, I cringed, I steeled myself because I thought, you know, what's she going to say to this child? What's she going to say? She's going to freak out. She's going to freak out because this is really freaking out circumstances, right? Suddenly, everybody's standing there in a puddle of orange Julius, right? And the mother did the most beautiful thing. She knelt down in front of her daughter and she looked in her eyes and she said, can you stand here? I'm just going to tell the lady at the till that we're going to need a mop. Um, Can you stand here and make sure nobody steps in the orange Julius because we don't want anyone to slip. And I was completely blown away because there was no one hurt in the process. The mother was acted with dignity. She treated the child with dignity. Everyone around them, you know, was was observing this this beautiful dignity of a mom not freaking out. And what I realized in that moment, because I had been stewing about, you know, what if I come to that place of freaking out? What I realized was I actually had a choice. So this was a choice. And I wasn't just going to be subject to being overwhelmed by motherhood and railroaded by motherhood. I could choose how, how I reacted. Of course, you know, any person's particular natural temperament is going to make this more difficult or easier to do, but we can train ourselves to be less reactive, right? We can all learn how to play a piano. We just have to practice. For some people, it's going to come more naturally. For others, it's going to be harder work, but we can still learn and become skilled in that. And so, yeah, once in a while, are we going to be caught off guard and get railroaded by motherhood? Absolutely. Does that need to happen all the time? No, we don't We don't need to pigeonhole ourselves in that way. When we talk about family relationships, we have to be really, really clear about what the difference is between ideals and expectations. Ideals are what we strive for and expectations are what we prepare for. So we can all move closer to the ideal of what we see for ourselves as parents and in our family life, but we have to be prepared to practice and having realistic expectations is going to help us do that. So culturally, what we use is rewards and consequences to raising and disciplining and teaching our kids. Okay, so I want to talk a little bit about that. Um, and how we benefit as families to move away from rewards and consequences as a model or the carrot and stick model and raise and discipline and teach our children more effectively and by keeping their dignity intact. So a lot of this talk will just be about soliciting cooperation from our children, not just regarding education, but all the teaching that we do, right? Everything that we do, we're teaching our kids something, whether it's manners, behavior, math, baseball, it's all the same. So it's just a skill or a skill set, right? So you may be thinking, okay, that, that's not actually true. Kids love baseball. 
But if we taught baseball in the same way that we teach math or chores, there would be no baseball league in the United States. Uh, if we taught hockey the same way that we teach spelling or how to speak respectfully, uh, there wouldn't be a hockey league in Canada. <laughs> There's a big clue here about how we teach and what is effective and what isn't. It isn't that hockey is so much more fun. It's our attitude and our presentation. For learning to happen effectively, we need to prepare the environment. And, you know, I have really thoughtful listeners, and I'm, I'm going to assume that my listeners as thoughtful parents are going to have done the very basics to prepare the environment, to eat reasonably well, get fresh air, get exercise and sleep, allow your children time to play, that, uh, that those are things that naturally thoughtful parents would be inclined to do, right? And sometimes just returning to those really basic things is enough to change family dynamics enormously that we are just making sure we're we're meeting those things and we can get derailed from that sometimes even though we we know those are the right things to do we can get derailed but to sort of talk a little bit more about you know sort of preparing environments i'm going to talk about preparing the environment for this particular talk because i think these are really important notes to address as we go into these ideas okay we can't force anyone else to like something okay I can't force you to like the color blue. I can't force you to like broccoli. We can't force anyone else to know something. I can't make you remember that South America is below North America. I can't make you remember that. I can't force you to do that. We can memorize it. There's lots of different ways I can approach that, but I can't force you to know that. Uh, we can't force anyone else to do something. We can use all kinds of bait. We can use all kinds of uh, carrots or sticks. We can use force, but we can't actually force another person to do a thing without creating an environment of actual force, right? Say, for example, a child tying their shoes, okay? So uh, we can say, you know, you can, you can, um, you need to tie your shoes, you need to tie your shoes, you need to tie your shoes. If you don't tie your shoes, you're going to get this, this, or this. If you do tie your shoes, you're going to get some, you know, nice thing, this, this, or this. However, if the child still doesn't care about the nice thing or the punishment, they don't care, maybe we're going to take their hands and we're going to put the laces in them. We're going, oh, I said, tie your shoes. And we tie the shoes and we force them to make a uh, granny nod and we force them to do this. Who's actually tying shoes here, right? Who's actually tying shoes? It's, it's, it's us who's tying the shoes. The child is not tying shoes. You know, when we talk about sort of using force, you know, to we're making somebody uh, walk down a hallway. If that person really doesn't want to walk down a hallway and they just plunk themselves at the end of the hallway, even if it's in another adult, if we have to actually lift them up and drag them, who is moving down the hallway, right? You're taking a, um, a body with you, but it's actually you who's moving the person down the hallway. We can't make that person walk down the hallway, right? We can only apply pressure, you know, and there's various ways of doing that. Don't force anyone else to not have emotions. Okay, these are really important ideas. If someone really doesn't want to do something, we can continue raising the stakes or upping the ante or make the motivators more enticing, but we can't force them. Here's another example with math. You know, we can hold their hand well we can hold the pencil we can plunk them in their chair we can force their hand or we can keep our hand over their hand and we can force them to write down the numbers and we can be saying it out loud but who's actually doing math it's the parent doing math the child is not doing math and i can sure as bet they're not learning math in these circumstances okay so our cultural go-to to control other people's behaviors is coercion so carrot and stick rewards and consequences they're actually both 
forms of coercion. And if we consider that we can't actually force somebody to do something we don't want them to do, then rewards and consequences is naturally self-limiting. We can only dangle prizes or punishments in front of them and hope that they're influenced by them. Sometimes that works. Some people are influenced. And sometimes you get a you know so-called positive result from that. However, there's enough drawbacks that I think it's really worth looking at whether or not we should approach the relationships differently. Okay, so first of all, carrots and sticks are kind of convoluted and cumbersome. Okay, different things work for different people, different ages, different situations. And we're constantly having to be one step ahead of the game to figure out what is the most effective way of motivating this person to do the thing I want them to do. It takes a lot of energy to execute because follow through is absolutely essential to rewards and consequences. It's integral to its success. If the child doesn't cooperate to our request, we need to up the ante and then we create another opportunity for them to disobey or not cooperate. So you can see where that could roll on and on, right? For the same reason, uh, the punishment often doesn't fit the crime. So say, for example, we say to our child, you know, you're going to have to put your crayons away or I'm going to, I'm going to take them away, you know, and then they don't put them away. You know, you have to put your crayons away or um, you're not allowed to play with your friend this afternoon. Um, you're going to put, you have to put your crayons away. They still don't listen. You have to put your crayons away. So we keep upping the ante. You have to put your crayons away or I'm putting all your toys away for the next week. Uh, you're going to have to put your crayons away or I'm going to give you a spanking. You're going to have to put your crayons away. You're going to bed without dinner, right? So we're upping the punishment to the crayons, not putting put away. So we end up with this big gap in what's an appropriate response to, you know, the crayons not putting away. And I would, you know, venture to to say that or the best way that we can do that, I'm going to say this in context before I go through my other points, is that we ask once or twice for the crayons to be put away. And if the child does not respond, we actually put the crayons away for a period of time. You know, we don't have to say anything. We don't have to nag. We don't have to anything. The next time they want crayons, uh, we can say, well, actually, you know, I put the crayons away because they don't get put away when uh, they're brought out. So so they're going to stay away for a few days or until I feel like you're uh, you're kind of ready to listen about that, you know, and, and they might beg and they might cry and they might carry on. So yeah, it's okay, right? We'll, we'll, you know, maybe in a week or two weeks or, you know, I don't know how long it will take, but, you know, we could talk about it, uh, that that will all be ready. We can keep our cool. We don't need to um, say, I told you so or anything like that. We can just put the crayons away. So carrot and stick is over-systemized. If we think that a reward consequence is suitable, or if if and and if it doesn't work, then we need to think of something else. As the child gets older, a new plan is required. You know, for example, if we give a child a gummy bear, get in your car seat, and then I'll give you a gummy bear. You know, I need you sitting down before you get your gummy bear. Okay, that's not going to work with a sixteen-year-old, right? So there's two really big drawbacks to this sort of idea of carrots and sticks. You're kind of painting yourself into a corner. The carrots have to get bigger. And at the end of the day, the only stick you'll have left is to kick the child out of the house, right? That's our our ultimate stick, right? Carrots don't really have an ultimate end except limited by our resources and our common sense. You know, that would I'll buy you a house, I'll buy you a car, I'll pay for your university, whatever it is, you know, you decide to to do that could keep going on and on. But most of us reach a point where we realize our resources are going to run out. <laughs> but those those are the corners we're going to could potentially paint ourselves into. Naturally, this is the, the biggest problem with carrot and stick. Naturally compliant children 
don't need rewards and consequences, right? Uh, naturally, non-compliant children don't care about rewards and consequences. <laughs> the naturally compliant child then is actually being formed in a sense to not be virtuous for the, the natural virtue they have of, you know, doing as they're asked to be done. You know, you're trying to be fair as a parent, so you have to meet out certain uh, criteria, you know, punish punishments or rewards. And then the 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 non-compliant child is kind of, in a sense, getting away with murder because they they can seem like they can do anything they want. It doesn't matter what punishment we instill on them. So I just want to share a little story there. I, years ago, I, friends of ours were telling us stories of a little girl who whose father said, "Come, you know, you need to come in and clean your room because supper's ready. You need to clean up your Lego. And she said, okay. So 10 minutes later, her dad came back and he said, but I told you to clean up your room. You know, supper's ready, right? I'm going to come back in 10 minutes. If you don't clean up your room, I'm going to spank you. If your room's not completely clean, I'm going to spank you. So 10 minutes later, again, he came back and he said, what is going on here? You still haven't cleaned your room? I said, I would spank you. And she said, yes, daddy, I, I was having a lot of fun. So I thought I would just take the spanking, right? She wasn't being sassy. This was a sweet girl. She was just simply not accepting the bargain or contract that was being offered to her. So, so it was a contract. It was, it was, you know, you do this or you're going to get this. But if she opted out of that thing, you know, okay, well, I'm not, you know, not going to clean up and I'm okay with the spanking. Where, where, where does that put us? That puts us, that really makes us impotent as parents, right? So our relationships should not be contractual and flies in the face of our dignity and the dignity of the others. Relationships are relational. And whenever we employ rewards or consequences, we're actually reducing the relationship to the state of contract. So what I would like to propose is that we don't ever need to employ the rewards and consequences method. We can eliminate carrots and sticks and eliminate coercion. People generally respond much better through internal initiative than they do through external sources. The word discipline comes from a Latin root word, dicipere, which means to teach or show. Some translators would say like to grasp intellectually or understand thoroughly, to kind of own something. So we often think of discipline as punishment, but everything we teach our kids through all the years we're teaching them is discipline of some sort, right? So we, we like to teach things that we really, really want kids to know, like something like manners or riding a bike. Okay, these are the way we really are providing a disciplinary model. We model, we teach, we show, we encourage, we prompt, we back away when the time is ripe. You know, for example, with manners, we uh, teach them their manners, you know, we use the bathroom, then we're going to wear and I'm going to wash your hands and we take their hands, we wash them, we put the soap on, we're going to rinse, you know, we're pleasant with them, right? And then they get a little older and we say, you know, did you remember to wash your hands? Or or uh, don't forget to thank mommy for supper. She made a nice supper. You know, or whatever. We give them little prompts and reminders, right? And then they start you know, going to other people's houses. And we don't, by the time they're old enough to do that, we don't say things like, don't forget to wash your hands, don't forget to. But we might say, um, you know, be sure to say thank you to so-and-so's mother when you leave, because that's a kind, when they've had you over, that's a kind thing to do you know, use, use nice manners, right? Manners, manners is a way of being thoughtful to other people. So we teach them manners over time and they slowly grab it. And one day they're heading out the door and they're, however, maybe they're 12, maybe they're 16, maybe they're 18, depends on the kid. And you're, you're not thinking about manners, right? You're just, you just know that they have it and that they'll be polite. 
So it's a process and we expect it to be a process. And this is really obvious with things like manners, that we're not teaching or motivating or controlling their emotions when they're learning these skills by offering them carrots or sticks. We just innately know that they will get it. And we, without knowing, employ the very best method to teach somebody something that they need to learn, right? We simply walk beside them and we show them and we encourage them. We trust the process and we're careful with our tone of voice, right? And it's so important. Your tone of voice is so important. So all aspects of learning are like this, from academic education to teaching appropriate behavior and handling emotions are, are like this as well. So we want to connect with our people first, right? Before we teach, before we show, before we guide, we want to connect with them, right? So there's ways we can do this in the context of homeschooling, right? One is to choose a learning model that supports the relationship and doesn't create sort of unnecessary friction, right? And the second thing is that when our kids are emotionally charged, learning the skills we need to handle their emotions and to help them handle their own emotions, right? And one of the best ways we can help them handle their own emotions for is for us to handle ours, right? So... I'm going to spend a few minutes on those two things, right? When we teach kids something, we want them to love. We walk beside them, we show them, encourage them. Uh, we can teach academic subjects the exact same way. Model, encourage, prompt, allow the full process to happen. Sometimes that takes a short time, sometimes it takes a long time. And then at the appropriate time, we know we can let it go, right? We can see that this has worked, okay? So just uh, by way of example, one of the ways that I teach long division with my kids is that I would just say, okay, we're going to learn long division and I'm going to show you how it's done. So I would write out a number. I would write out the number I'm dividing into it and I would just monologue what I'm doing. Okay, this four goes into this eight two times. I'm going to put a two up here. Then I go two times four equals eight. I put it underneath this eight. I put a line. I subtract, it actually equals zero. I bring down the next number. And I just talk, I just say what I'm doing and I show them what I'm doing. And for some kids, I might do show them that they might say, oh, can you do another one, right? Sure, okay, and I might do two or three. I might do one. And for the precocious child, it won't be very long before they say, oh, I know what you do next. Or, oh, can I help you, right? So they know how to do it. And, and so they grab it. They grab it and they're grabbing it slowly. You keep working with them. You're helping them. You're guiding them. And maybe within a few days, they're doing their own long division independently. With a child that is more tentative, probably they're going to need to watch you many more times, maybe 10 times, maybe 20 times before they can actually answer a question. Often with children like this, they watch, they watch, they watch, and then they announce, I can do this now. I understand what you're doing now. And they actually do it themselves once they know that they've nailed it in their brain. But if they don't, that's okay. We work through it. What, what's really important was if we focused on really short, engaged moments of learning. We look them in the eye. We'd be cozy with them. You know, it's so effective, right? If you take a slice of onion and you put it under a microscope and look at it and wonder about it and talk about it for five minutes... This will not be five minutes of education, right? Your children will actually drive you nuts with questions and comments about the onions for, you know, <laughs> two days or a week or however long. Uh, putting the onion under the microscope just opens the door for that conversation. So as parents, you are the microscope. You open the door, whether it's onions or language or math. It doesn't really matter. All subjects can be taught this way. So five minutes is not five minutes. It's a good 
academic model. It's a model that creates passion and models interest and avoids conflict because it's short and because you're being very present, right? We avoid a lot of parenting difficulties and conflict just by being present. So our time is less wasted by conflict and coercion. So we've learned as parents how to trust this process with some things that we teach our kids, but the other things, most of us just don't realize that this this method of teaching is is viable. And I don't know when or how that changed, but I think it's something that we need to get back to. So dictation is a method of teaching language arts simply by working with the child and helping them along. We help them along with their math. We do shorter lessons, but we stay with them, right? That's something that I will link some show notes to other podcast episodes where we've talked about math or we've talked about dictation. But what about inappropriate behavior? Okay, that's a whole other ball game. What about raging emotions that stall out any kind of productivity or peace in our home? Sometimes we get in a bad mood or sometimes our kids get in a bad mood. It doesn't really matter how enthusiastic we are as parents or how engaged we are, that they're just not going to respond to learning something new, whether it's you know immediately regarding their behavior or geography, for example. And if your child's having a meltdown, explaining to them how a meltdown isn't going to be helpful in that moment of the meltdown is is you know not really going to be effective. If a child is miserable and uncooperative and it seems like an unshakable mood, you may feel like threatening something, right? It's how we're kind of conditioned as as human beings, right? We'll, you know, threaten this thing. And if you feel you're a threat rising up like you in a storm, here's something you could try. Threaten something that isn't possible. <laughs> Threaten something you don't have to follow through with. Like, I'll have a whole bag of these kind of threats. You know, I'll have a conniption, I'll hit the roof, I'll have a cow, I'll blow my cork. Um, eventually, my kids would catch onto these kinds of things and moms just say, Mom, that isn't even a thing. <laughs> uh, and we can make light of the situation, right? To walk beside a child in their poor behavior, in their wild tantrums, in their stubbornness, in their willfulness, largely means. In for us as parents to not react. By not reacting, we show the child that we're invested in them, in the relationship, not in their emotion. So the relationship will always transcend the problem. It's not always apparent in the way that we behave or the way that they behave, but the relationship transcends or trumps the problem always. But this is something that we learn as human beings. We're pretty far removed from it in our particular culture. And we have to be gentle with ourselves when we're learning new things, because we also are are in process, right? Uh, here on Vancouver Island, we live in an earthquake zone. So this is an analogy that I like to <laughs> to share with you. You know, our government puts out pamphlets on earthquake preparedness, and it's kind of a big deal. People are aware of whether or not the building they work in is is seismically updated, or you know, we have to prepare the environment. And we have to practice. We're supposed to do, you know, practices in our homes or schools or whatever on what what to do in the middle of an earthquake. So, you know, one of the things we're taught is when an earthquake when an earthquake strikes, we drop to the ground, we take cover with the nearest thing, you know, a wall, a heavy table, something uh, protective, and we count to sixty. If we were together, if we were with another person, we would probably take our cover and hold each other and pray really hard. Uh, it doesn't really matter how big or small the earthquake is. This is how you're supposed to respond because we don't know by the first rumblings of an earthquake how big it's going to be. 
after an earthquake, we're going to take stock again. We're going to be a little better prepared. We're not going to be caught off guard. Uh, if an earthquake strikes, this is not the moment that I'm going to start instructing my children on what to do when an earthquake strikes. Okay, it would be fruitless. And when an emotional earthquake strikes, is it a little one? Is it a big one? It doesn't really matter. Whatever disciplinary measures you take in that moment are not going to be fruitful. Okay, you can deal with it later in this moment of emotional earthquake. Learning can't happen. So lecturing, yelling, punishing, it's not a teachable moment at all. We're not in an emotional place to have it be in a teachable moment. You know, if your child were learning how to play baseball and they started having a fit in the middle of you teaching them and they wouldn't continue, uh, you wouldn't continue trying to tell them how to hold the bat or keep their eye on the ball. It would be ludicrous, right? But we often do this with their behavior in the middle of a meltdown or bad behavior. We try to continue teaching them what they're doing wrong and what they should be doing instead, right? And they aren't teachable right now. We can take stock when everything has calmed down, right? We can hold each other. We can pray. We can count to 60, we can count to 600. <laughs> when calmness happens, then we can say, wow, what happened there? You were so upset. You do not like feeling that way. You do not like hurting your brother. You're crying so hard. What can we do? What can we do? You know, you're going to privately probably have some things that you're going to take stock on yourself, right? Did I let them get overtired? Did I let them get hungry? Should I have dealt with the conflict before it blew up? Uh, did I know they needed a little positive attention and, and I didn't give it? Or it was the environment. Was there, were they out of the house? Were they saying hurtful things to each other? Was there a neighbor kid who was bullying them? Was there something that was overlooked that I failed to, uh, that I didn't even fail? I just was unaware of what had been going on and therefore uh, this thing happened, right? This thing is just a thing, right? It's, it's just a thing that happened. We need to practice with little things, okay? Little irritations, little upheavals, right? Let them be opportunities in your day to practice kindness and patience, right? As you as you practice these things, you just, you get better, right? You get more skilled, you gain self-control. You know, some some children are harder to love, right? Uh, some kids are hard to love, most of the time, but most kids are hard to love occasionally. Uh, if all our kids were hard occasionally, it would be hard for us to grow. Uh, if all of our kids were only difficult occasionally, it would be hard for us to grow. Okay. Uh, we grow because we practice. We grow because we're brought to our knees. We grow because we reach a point of despair. And there are things we can do to gain the strength we need to withstand the irritations outside of dealing with moods and conflicts. We can practice detachment from our own emotions. They're just there. Okay. Acknowledge it, right? Feeling really frustrated right now. You don't need to say it out loud necessarily, but you might to your husband or someone else or to your children even. Um, I'm feeling really frustrated right now. I need to just take a few minutes and it's just there. It's just, but we don't have to give into that. We don't have to act on that. We just have to acknowledge that it's there. Uh, just because I feel a thing doesn't mean I need to, to um, you know, flip out on somebody about it, right? I don't have to find whoever's fault it is, right? We can detach from getting in our own way simply by asking this question of ourselves. You know, why do I do this particular thing this particular way, right? Why do I drive this way? Why do I sit this way? Maybe it doesn't matter much. Maybe I need to Sometimes 
do things differently just to shake up my routine so I don't get pigeonholed. I don't pigeonhole myself into believing that things have to be done a certain way. We can also practice detachment from our stuff, right? That sweater we've been hanging on to for 10 years and never wear, uh, we can let it go. We can let someone else wear it. When we practice detachment from one thing, it usually spills over into other areas of our life. So practicing detachment is really an act of letting go, okay? So in the same way that we can let go of a thing that we have, we can let go of a attitude we develop, we can also let go of controlling a situation, right? And it's a beautiful freedom to just be able to kind of let go. Somebody's having a really severe, uh, having really severe emotions. We can, we can let go. You know, we can train ourselves to walk with our kids, uh, walk beside them in their learning and in their frustrations and in their obnoxious behavior. And we can avoid sort of these contractual uh, ways that we fall into carrot and stick. And we can also notice when we do do the carrot and stick thing, or we do parent in such a way or discipline in such a way that is not our ideal, we can notice that, right? Okay, I'm, that was not exactly what I wanted to do. How did that go? Did it go okay? Did it go badly? Uh, what do I want next time? So there's dozens of times a day when we can make small acts of restraint, and that those little times of restraint uh, can help us deal with the bigger things that come up, right? And most of the time, if we don't react to small infractions or rudeness, I'm talking specifically about from our kids right now, uh, the offending child will come to you of their own free will and apologize. And that's a, that's a beautiful thing, right? Mommy, I shouldn't have talked to you that way. Mommy, I'm sorry I was grumpy with you. You know, I'm sorry I whacked my brother. Uh, you know, if we can let go and treat them kindly, then it allows their own conscience to develop naturally, right? So, we, we need to assume the best of them. Um, they don't want to be acting this way. So I think that the most important thing that we need to remember when we're trying to move away from carrots and sticks, when we sort of decide that this is a, a method we would prefer not to be using, is number one, think about how we would like to be treated. If we were behaving poorly, if we were expressing emotions, if we were learning something new, uh, how would we uh, want to be treated by our spouse, by our friend, by our boss? And for me, that was the deciding factor that helped me to be able to translate, okay, what do I do in this situation to how would I want to be treated in this situation? And how can that translate into the way that I might uh, I might want to treat my kids, right, and and keep everyone's dignity intact because really that's that's uh, what we are doing. We're keeping dignity intact for ourselves, for the people around us, for the child on the receiving end. Uh, so that's that's what I would encourage to um, for parents to just take a look at whether or not something innately has dignity. Um, and whether a response has dignity is treating others with dignity because ultimately that is the golden rule that would make sense that 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 would apply in our in our uh, relationship with our kids and our discussions and discipline and the way we teach right that all of that would would come down to the dignity of the other so god bless you and have a wonderful afternoon mm-hmm.